Hi, my name is Brendan Malone and you're listening to The Dispatches, the podcast that strives to cut through all the noise in order to challenge the popular narratives of the day with some good old-fashioned contrarian thinking. You might not always agree, but at least you'll be taking a deeper look at the world around you. Hi everybody, welcome along to this week's special patrons only episode of The Dispatches. It's great to be back with you once again. A huge thank you to all of you. It's thanks to you that the content of Left Foot Media is able to be produced. And without you, we wouldn't be able to do any of this work. So a huge thank you to all of you. Welcome aboard to the new patrons who have joined us over the past week. It's great to have you with us. And a couple of people have actually asked me over the last few days, what's the best way to, to or the easiest way to to listen to these patron only episodes of the podcast. Well, probably the easiest way is to download the Patreon app, and if you download that to your phone, then you can listen to these patrons only episodes of the podcast in much the same way that you would listen on, say, Spotify or iTunes. You can start them playing, lock your phone, and then just carry on with your business, whatever it is that you do when you are listening to these podcasts. Alternately, if you want to use the RSS feed and you know what you're doing there and you want to enter that into another app, then just uh, message me privately and I will send you those details. Before I jump into today's topics of conversation, and we've got a few to cover off today, uh, let me just give you a little bit of a highlight about what I'm thinking about covering in the other couple of episodes coming up this week. Of course, this is all subject to change depending on what happens in the life of society and whether something more pressing perhaps might take over in the meantime, but one thing I'd really like to, to focus on this week in a particular episode of the dispatches is the question of what are the skills and qualifications we actually need in our politicians in light of, I guess, what's happened uh, recently, and there's a lot more talk now about the idea of we need more scientists in Parliament, and uh, there's also uh, a big focus on political leadership over the past week or so here in New Zealand with the, the massive reshuffle of the uh, National Party, where there's a leadership, um, well, I was going to say a leadership coup, but that sort of makes it sound like an unsurprising and sort of negative thing. But there's a leadership change. It sort of was rather sudden, but hardly unexpected for those who are following politics. Another topic that I'm really keen on exploring this week as well is the whole issue of individuals and groups who are exploiting COVID for their own ideological aims. And there's a, an article that was published in the mainstream media here in New Zealand today, actually, and I, I want to uh, go through that and unpack it because it really does highlight that there are, as, as we've seen with climate change, actually, there are groups who are more than happy to exploit these situations for their own political and ideological aims. And it's something that we should be very, very wary of. I think particularly now in a state of sort of unbridled panic and fear and it's it's global, it's it's a lot easier for nefarious actors to sort of carry on and carry out and conduct their nefarious business without as much scrutiny and attention as they sort of should be getting. Basically, all you need to do is say the magic buzzwords uh, in the midst of a crisis and you sort of, you, know, you seem to get a free pass, really. So we'll, uh, we'll talk more about that in an episode later this week. Right, today, I want to focus on a couple of things in particular, and there's a few other things around these issues that I think are worthy of touching on. The big one, of course, is the Omicron overreaction it's just, man, since last week, gosh, has this ramped up a whole other gear. But it really is an overreaction, and we need to talk about that. And then I want to talk about the topic of, of COVID spiritual abuses, because it's something that I am becoming increasingly aware of and seeing more and more of this. And I want to talk about this in today's episode. Before I do that, though, a couple of things I want to start with. First, and probably most importantly of all, is... And by the way, in today's episode, we're going to get a little bit of feedback from you, our patrons, actually. And so I want to start with the first bit of uh, patron feedback is a question that was sent to me by one of my patrons and a longtime uh, watcher and listener of the content that I've been producing, a guy called Jerry. Uh, Jerry, great to hear from you. And he said this, given all of your recent COVID chatter, one topic I'm curious about is whether you've come across a straightforward cost-benefit analysis of vaccines, particularly for kids. I have two kids under 10, and while I'm not against getting them vaccinated, I feel like I don't have the right info to make an informed decision. For instance, if kids already have a 99.999% chance of survival without a vaccine, what is their chance of survival with the vaccine? Does it go up to four nines, five nines? And how does that compare to the associated risk from the shot itself? 
I'm only seeing hysteria to hurry up and get them jabbed, not any kind of objective assessment of why. Anyway, I'm really enjoying your pivot to podcasts, so keep up the good work, and I hope your audience continues to grow in 2022. Thank you, Jerry, and it's great to have you on board for this journey. Jerry is someone who was following me back in my uh, YouTube, Halsey on YouTube days, when uh, I was producing more sort of uh, movie and and uh, social commentary stuff in that space, and so he's now pivoted and joined us on the podcast journey. It's great to have you with us, Jerry. Uh, in response to your question, well, I think you've really summed up some things really, really well here. One thing I would say before I get into the specific question you've asked is this: you you make a statement this. Um, while I'm not against getting them vaccinated, I feel like I don't have the right info to make an informed decision, and that's quite a key point. I think no one should really be making these kind of medical decisions until they feel comfortable that they have enough information on board and that they are making, that they're actually consenting to something. They're not just going along with something. They're not being coerced into something, that they're actually giving a a reasoned consent. So they've sat down, they've weighed up the odds, they've looked at the evidence in front of them, they've got the best available evidence, the best available information, and then, you know, they, they make a decision. That's really how informed consent should happen. And so if you're not comfortable with that, and you feel like, I just don't have enough right now for that, then I would say don't rush into the, into any sort of decision. I think especially when it involves our children. I think that's really, really important. Um, you are right. Uh, as far as I can tell, and I've been following this with interest for a while now, listening to different sources on both sides of this issue, the research regarding children and vaccines seems to be, I was going to say vague, I think it's more spotty at best. It's and, and it, there does not seem to be, the, the interesting thing for me is watching how this is rolling out around, around the world and different countries are taking different approaches, which in one sense is actually good because I think, I actually think science and particularly in a time of crisis like this, it really should be, and medical responses in particular, it should be localised because every population is different. They have different needs, different issues, different factors at play, and so that makes sense. But on the other hand, what's interesting about that is it sort of seems to speak to the fact that there isn't one clear, uniform understanding right now about what actually is the best approach to be taking with children. And I think that, you know, for those of us who are interested in making a proper informed decision, I think that's a reason to stop and pause and to say, okay, well, I want to assess this a bit more clearly and a bit more deeply. Um, to me, I think, uh, and, and reading um, different expert responses to this, I think there is definitely a case that can be made if you have a child who is at risk, who's particularly at risk from COVID. And so you have a child with health issues, which makes them particularly vulnerable to COVID. And so they're not in the uh, typical um, demographic for children with COVID. And that typical demographic um, is that uh, children get COVID, they get a very mild form of it, and they recover quickly. They get the lowest rates of long COVID uh, of anybody, and they also uh, generally don't die from it. So they're, they're, they're really in a good, um, and in many ways I'd say an enviable position, and it's one of the small mercies, I've been saying this for a while about this pandemic, is that we're not seeing children uh, dying wholesale. And, and that I think that is a small mercy that we can be grateful for in the midst of this. But what this means is that children also should be considered as a unique demographic. And it's hardly surprising. Again, one of the things that's sort of gone out the window in this whole pandemic is actually, I think, doing proper medicine. And what I mean by that is not that, you know, doctors are not trying their best under some trying circumstances, but the sort of the general mentality from the top down, the political response has been, it seems, to try and find these one size fits all and often very myopic and narrow solutions. Really, at the moment, it doesn't seem to be much beyond give people a vaccine or give everyone a vaccine. But really, I think good healthcare, if I understand things correctly, is that good healthcare should be about actually personalizing to the specific needs of a patient. And then you sort of work your way up from there. So it's patients and then demographic groups. And, you know, you don't start with a whole population wide, like as in the whole of a society, a whole of a country or the whole of a planet, and then sort of try and impose a mandate like that. Human beings don't work that way. It's not really how medical science should be working, I don't think. And so I think we need to take into account the fact that children are a very different demographic and they have different factors uh, at play here. Now, that could all change as well, of course, if there is a new variant which was to arrive that was deadly to children or presented a much greater risk. But it does seem to me that 
the when you do the cost benefit, it seems that for children, uh, unless they are at risk, as I said, and thinking this through as a logical person and looking at the evidence, that unless they actually have an at-risk situation or a condition they're dealing with, then it would make sense that they probably shouldn't be vaccinated, that the vaccine itself does carry risks, and particularly we know for younger age groups and also the fact that we don't have lots of study data yet, reliable study data about vaccinating children. It seems that this will be, I think, even more of an experiment than what the the previous vaccine rollout to, uh, around the world was, where we just rushed this thing onto the market and effectively have been, I think, engaged in a, I would, I would suggest, highly ethically questionable, at best, human trial, actually, uh, with this vaccine. And, and we've been consistently telling people that there's nothing to worry about, it's all safe. No, no, anyone who's, who even wants to raise legitimate questions is somehow anti-science, anti-vax, etc., etc. But in actual fact, we really are in the midst of and have been conducting a very large human trial. Um, and I think the, the the risk for children, I think, around this, or well, the questions about children and research, I think it's 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 even less substantiated. So um, th- there's, there's even greater risk involved in this. And so I, I think it would be more prudent to actually hold off. Like, th- there's an argument I've heard some people making who are pro, and they're saying, well, it creates, you know, this is about creating a shield of protection. It's like a firewall, and, you know, kids are notorious spreaders of, of all sorts of um, different lurgies. And so if we get them vaccinated, that'll help the rest of us. And you sort of think on the on the surface of it, you think, oh, that sounds like there's some merit to that. But then you sort of stop and think, well, does this really make sense, though? It, it would make sense if this was like a once and done sort of situation. So you vaccinated someone once, and then that guaranteed like lifetime foolproof protection. But the vaccine doesn't do that. And that's not also how respiratory viruses work. They do keep changing. And so they keep circulating. And so it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense that we're actually doing much that's meaningful here. Um, one of the bizarre things in this pandemic is just the way in which the fundamentals of science that we all learnt, even going back to high school, they just sort of seem to have been thrown right out the window. And uh, this is one of those cases where it would seem to me that what we have here, and this is what I, this is my personal opinion, is that the rush to vaccinate children now reeks of two things. It reeks of panic on the part of um, people who are afraid and who are worried. And I can't blame parents for being fearful. They've been constantly had it sort of beaten into them over and over and over again for months and months now. You know, won't somebody think of the children? Oh, the children are getting sick. And, and, and there's no context for that. It's just this sort of wild-eyed, hysterical sort of screaming from the roof, rooftops. You know, the, the, the children are sick. The children are sick. As if somehow that's an abnormal thing for children to get sick. But there's no context about what that means in this case. And are they actually getting serious harms from this? Are they dying from this? All of that's pushed aside. And so you create the state of fear. A lot of panic, uh, parents are really worried about that and they love their kids and they're fearful of what could happen to them. So you've got, you got panic. You've also got politicization. You've got politicians who have wedded themselves to the vaccines because, let's be honest, the vaccine is now their route to political stardom and political fame and, 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 and political protection. Because if, if they can actually get everyone vaccinated and make this thing go away, or at the very least... They get everyone vaccinated and it goes away for another reason, but they get to claim credit for it, then they really, they're on the winning team here. And so there's a sort of a, a political motivation here to try and get as many people vaccinated as possible. And it's that's not a scientific proposition or a medical thing. That's just uh, people looking at political odds and equations and trying to get outcomes for themselves based along politics and power. And then, of course, you've also got the the sort of the, the lurking uh, menace of pandemic profiteering. You've got uh, pharmaceutical companies who are more than happy, they are more than happy to have even more people lining up to use their products because that will add just so much more to their bottom line. What you've done here, or what potentially what is happening here, is you're opening up a whole new market. And so it just seems there's lots of reasons here to stop and say, what are we doing? Now, that could all change if you get a new variant that turns out to be really deadly for children and the, and the risk factors change. But I think in the meantime, I don't think you vaccinate as sort of like a, you know, people have been talking about the biomedical state, and I think this is part of it, where you just sort of normalize 
people taking medical therapies, even if they don't need them. But if you don't need a medical therapy, I don't think you should be using it. I think you use medical interventions if there's a need. So there's a general need for you to actually have a medical intervention or utilize some medical technology, then you utilize it. But if not, what exactly are we doing? We're just sort of vaccinating for the sake of it. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I think at this stage, my instinct with, and certainly in regards to my own children, is that we are uh, we're not rushing out to vaccinate our children. For us, we are absolutely waiting for much more reliable data. And I think for me also, I would be more comfortable if there was a more traditional and uh, therefore um, a safety profile that was well established and well known, there was a more traditional vaccine platform available. I think I would be comfortable if a vaccine had been proven to be safe and it used the technology of um, you know deactivated virus particles, you know the traditional way of actually doing vaccines, I'd be comfortable for my children to actually uh, receive that vaccine in this situation. But in the current climate and what we're dealing with, I just think there's so many reasons to be cautious. And no, you are not insane for being cautious. And as I understand it, the risk benefit at the moment really is, unless there is a um, a pre-existing health condition, the risk benefit actually works in favour of not vaccinating children because the vaccine them, the vaccines themselves and the unknowns also about some of those safety effects on, on younger children. So thanks for that question, Jerry, and uh, your kind words as well. It's great to hear from you. Before the end of this podcast, we are going to hear from another one of our patrons who has sent in to me a, uh, a piece of creativity, a piece of poetry that I, I really want to read and share with you um, because I, I thoroughly enjoyed it myself. Uh, moving right along to the next story, though, um, last week here in New Zealand, the National Party, for those who are outside of New Zealand who are listening, one of our two major parties, uh, National and Labour, National tends to be sort of pitched as the right of centre party, but in many ways they're kind of a bit, I'll talk about this in a minute, they're not really, I don't, well, I don't think they are really, but that's a whole other story, but there was, a, there was a leadership change in that party, sudden but not really unexpected. Christopher Luxon, the former CEO of uh, Air New Zealand, is now the leader of the National Party. His deputy leader is a lady called Nicola Willis. And there's also been in the last couple of days a cabinet reshuffle and, uh, you know, MPs moving up and down the up and down the ladder. And uh, speaking to uh, friends of mine who are MPs uh, some months ago about this particular factor, apparently it's quite common and it's actually quite normal um, to have these sort of reshuffles where it's sort of the expectation is that you you punish your allies, uh, no, you punish your allies, you, you, you uh, reward your allies and you, and you punish those who, who are sort of more of a threat to you. It's not unusual. But there is some interesting things that we can definitely take from the reshuffle that we've had here by um, Christopher Luxon of the National Party. Um, before I get into that, though, what was interesting to see was the media reaction. The media just went feral about the fact that uh, he has a Christian background. And I say background because, uh, as he said in the media this week, uh, he hasn't been to church in five years. So, yeah, I, I think let, let's, let's, um, let's be clear. I, I suspect that what we're probably going to see is, I mean, I could be wrong, but my suspicion is we're, we're dealing with a man who has been a Christian uh, at the moment, it's uncertain what he actually is. He's, because I, I really believe that to be a Christian does require you ultimately to practice in some way. And and there might be rare exceptions to that. But I think generally, that what that would mean is that you would attend a worshipping community, even if it's just a small home church of some sort. You would, the, the moment someone says, I haven't been to church in years, is the moment I do think they've they've moved away from Christianity into something else, some sort of post Christianity or some sort of um, you know self uh, identifying and self crafted religious belief. So the the irony is he hasn't been to church in five years, but the media attacked him over the whole Christian thing anyway, and a lot of people were making hay out of the fact that hey look the the media's gone after his Christian faith. We don't hear them attacking atheists like this. Um, I think part of it is that the media, a lot of people in the media now, they're just sort of like um, pre-programmed robots in a lot of ways. They've got a, they've, what I mean by that is it's like Robocop. If you've ever seen the movie Robocop, if you haven't, no, I'm not recommending it, but if you have, you know what I'm talking about. And, and Robocop is pre-programmed with these prime directives and he doesn't really know why, but he's just got the prime directives. And so 
you know, these are protocols he must follow. And it's almost like these ideological prime directives. And so there's like a Christian who also has expressed opposition to abortion in the past. And again, this week, he made statements that indicate that he's more than willing to walk away from that as well. He's changed his vote already, for example, on the safe areas, quote unquote, safe areas legislation, which is proposing to make it um, a, a, a criminal act to speak publicly about abortion within 150 metres of an abortion clinic. Um, uh, if, if the legislation goes through and an abortion clinic applies for this, they will be able to become a sort of a safe area abortion clinic and you won't be able to uh, speak freely about abortion. It'll be a, a criminal offence. It'll be punishable by law. Now, he voted against that initially and now he's changing his vote. So at the first reading, he votes against it. Second reading, he's voting for it now. So... You know, there's lots of lots of reasons to to think that you know this is hardly going to be a sort of a return to you know uh, theocracy and 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 some sort of um, imposed theological rule. It's just it's just I think that's just fantasy land stuff. But the people, the journalists involved, are in a sort of uh, pre-programmed mode, and they panic and and they sort of think, oh my gosh, it's a threat, it's a threat, because ideologically they've been told to treat a person who holds certain views as a threat. And so they just went on to autopilot. And I think that's why we saw that happening. But as I said, when you look at this, you look at what Christopher Luxon has actually said in the last few days, and also uh, his deputy, Nicola Willis, is is someone who is absolutely, um, she's very liberal, pro-euthanasia, pro-abortion, voted for the extreme abortion law, voted against uh, the various attempts to um, make both of those laws less extreme, etc., uh, the cabinet reshuffle. It's pretty clear that what we're going to have here, I think, under Christopher Luxon is a, a a liberal party, a liberal party. And and we're not, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It, 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 what it's revealed really, I think, in a very clear way, well, certainly for me anyway, is that in New Zealand politics, we don't really have a lot of political choice. We really have two major parties and some minor hangers-on but in, a, in actual fact, really, and a lot of the West is grappling with this now, we, we don't really have the broad range of choice that you might imagine. Um, when you look at the two main parties, what we have, I think, at the moment is, is basically an incompetent liberal party with Marxist tendencies, that's the Labour Party, versus a liberal party with free market tendencies, and I think it seems, based certainly on their immediate previous performances, and who who's to know what the new government will be like, they seem to have a little bit more competence. Um, and and that to be fair, though, that is untested. So they might turn out to be just as incompetent, I don't know. But really, there's not... The, the key thing is there that that liberal ideology, the ideology of liberalism, is very much entrenched now in both parties. And you don't really have much of a choice outside of that it's kind of interesting that the smaller players don't really get much sway. It's it's and and there's such a great irony in all this because the MMP system that we operate under was supposed to provide greater diversity and representation. That was the whole point. The selling point was that it would actually first of all we were told it would stop the sort of dominance uh, you know of one party or one figure over the New Zealand political landscape. Well. This election cycle has completely blown that out of the water with the the Labour Party and Jacinda Ardern, who absolutely wields a, a, a dangerously unaccountable level of power. And so MMP did not stop that from happening. And it very much is also a cult of personality type leadership. The, the, as I said, the irony here was I remember when we were told, you know, we had the option which system to vote for. One of the the big supposed selling points of MMP was that it would it would it would stop a, a character like Adolf Hitler rising to power and this is why you saw it and in, in, um, arise after World War II as an option well you know really <laughs> that, that 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 whole claim that it would stop a sort of uh, a, a, an unaccountably powerful sort of cult of personality leadership has been proven completely wrong and then the other claim was really that it would give greater diversity and representation well, it hasn't really achieved that either, and it certainly isn't at the moment. It sort of it does seem like we don't have much political choice. And again, I, I think it raises another interesting factor for me, which is something I've been focused on in my own uh, my own ministry work actually that I do, which is really trying to form and encourage a new younger generation 
with uh, you know good strong leadership skills that are grounded in virtue and natural law and things like that. And one of the big things I've constantly talked about with the young people that I train each year is I encourage them to recognize that in actual fact, politics is built on the back of the ideological current. Uh, Politics is like a boat that floats on the waters of culture. And so whatever way the, the cultural currents are blowing, generally that's what your politics are going to do as well. And this, I think, really reinforces that, that the sort of fixation on political solutions is not really a long-term uh, way of addressing these issues. It's much more complex. It's much deeper. And it, the reality is there might not even be a long-term fix. Uh, history is not a progression towards greatness and even greater levels of greatness, as some on the progressive side might fantasize it to be. History is a cycle of, of booms and collapses, booms and collapses. You know, cultures that rise have great success and then almost in many ways become victims of their own success, their own opulence and comfortability, and then that slide into mediocrity happens, and then there's the crash. And so, so you know, that's, that's the way history goes, and it might well be that we, well, we are, I think, going through some form of crash, whether that is a hard crash and it's all over and everything smashes into a thousand bits of unrepairable China, or whether that's sort of a soft landing where, you know, some things get damaged and they, you know, the wings get torn off, but we rebuild something new out the other side of it, who knows? But uh, but yeah, definitely. Um, the, the the reality is that that our politics. Uh, you know, I think some people are sort of looking for a political messiah or a political savior to solve the problem of a person who thinks they are a political messiah and wields far too much power. That's not really the answer to this either. What we really need is, I go back to Edmund Burke. We need to really nurture and build up and support and fight for the little platoons of society, and that's strengthening communities, local communities, small communities, families, marriages, you know, giving strength to those places that actually give rise to greatness in a society. Right, moving right along, and as promised, one of the two main big topics I wanted to talk about today was the Omicron overreaction, which we really are, it's starting to peter a little bit, I think, uh, as of today and yesterday, but we've, we've had basically a week of of, I think, media scaremongering, uh, certainly. And the media, by the way, should know better. We've heard this over the last couple of years, this sort of self-referential talk about we need to do better and we allowed certain people. This is really, think about Donald Trump. He was a great example of this. You know, that they, the media talking about how they allowed him and gave him too much leverage. And that was a dangerous and a bad thing. And they need to do better next time. And they need to think about how they frame issues. And uh, again, just just do your job, just do your job, which is try in the most balanced way to report the important facts about the important issues. And that gives us the ordinary hoi polloi, the ability to sort of just to try and look at and understand exactly the cultural stew that we find ourselves sitting in right now. That's all we need, right? But the point is that they know, they've had this sort of self-referential sort of examination of conscience over the past couple of years. And so they know that the way they act definitely contributes to setting a temperature in a society. And so the media really don't have any excuse for pumping out headlines and articles that very much, they are clickbait articles, but they scaremonger around this issue. And if you were doing proper journalism, you would say, hold on, why why would we be scaring people when, and by the way, it's not just the media either. Obviously, politicians have had their crack over the last few days. Susie Wiles here from New Zealand. I read a piece from her in the last 24 hours. Same sort of thing. Very vague on details because we don't have lots of good, reliable data at the moment that we actually need. But despite that fact, there's lots of people rushing off to make all sorts of concrete pronouncements about what needs to happen here. One of the fascinating ones, I was talking to my wife about this the other day, is this whole, we need to get vaccinated right now and we need to get as many people. This is a wake-up call. Omicron is a wake-up call that we must get vaccinated. And as I said to myself and I said to my wife as I was reading this, uh, why? Why? Because we, we've, got a, um, we've got a new mutation here that has actually, I think, I, I, now correct me if I'm wrong, but Initially, we thought it was 32 mutations on the spike protein, which is massive, but apparently it's more likely, and it's looking like it's around 50 mutations on the spike protein, which would explain why these vaccines aren't working for Omicron anymore. Because, of course, the vaccines 
or certainly the majority of the ones that were used, it will be interesting to see now how other countries go who are using different types of vaccines which provide a broader spectrum of protection so they don't just target the, the um, spike protein. But if you've got a vaccine on board, which a lot of people have now, which is designed to target the spike protein when it's a particular shape, and then the shape of that spike protein changes, then, well, of course, it's not rocket science that, you know, the vaccine's not going to work. So in, in light of that, why would you be saying, well, everyone needs to get vaccinated ASAP? We don't have a Omicron vaccine option available yet. The, the uh, corporations who are promising to bring us one are saying it'll be about four months or so before that's on the scene. I suspect that's going to be well and truly too late um, if this thing really is as transmissible as it seems. It's, it's probably absolutely going to be. The horse will have bolted by them. The worry, of course, is the fact that it's going to take four months is that a whole lot of po politicians are just going to hit the panic button again and say, well, we need to lock everyone down because we don't have a vaccine without actually considering the real facts of what Omicron actually is. But the point is, why would you tell people to rush out and get vaccinated right now with a vaccine that is consistently showing, already based on the limited data that we do have, that it's not actually going to stop the transmission of this thing? So maybe you could make an argument, well, maybe it will blunt the edge of this thing, but we don't even know that. We don't. We just don't have enough data yet to actually ascertain. There's certainly some pretty... Um, positive indications here, and I say positive because they look really good for us, that this Omicron variant is actually very mild and that it could well spell the end of the pandemic. So you have a variant that's mild, which is highly transmissible, which just takes over, destroys all the other variants because it's so dominant, because it's so transmissible. People don't get sick and die from it, generally speaking. And then what happens is you get a herd immunity. This is a like this is actually an advantage to us. It sort of, you know, it really would sort of see the virus start to become endemic in a way that's much more helpful and beneficial to us. But one of the interesting things is I was reading some data just yesterday actually about uh, South Africa and and you know the sort of the epicenter for this outbreak. Um, it may not be actually the the place where it originated because it seems there are other nations in Europe that have got cases before um, the South African, the earliest known recorded ones there. But what's interesting is there's data coming out of, because it's sort of such a widespread population spread there. Uh, what's interesting is the data coming out of there is, you know, they know from some of the sewage testing that it really is, this thing is, it's taken off in a big way, that, that it really, so it's highly contagious, but they've got a very under-vaccinated population. And although they are starting to see a rise in hospital admissions, the, the outcomes are better even in that context and it's nowhere near what it has been previously. So it's um, this all looks very positive and what it also means is, is if this thing really is widespread, massively widespread amongst a largely unvaccinated population, which is what South Africa is, and you are not seeing a massive spike in hospitalizations and death, and then when the people go to hospital, the majority of those people are not on um, they're not going on to oxygen assistance or ventilators. They're able to to survive and carry on with just room air. And in actual fact, by the way, too, uh, a majority of those people who are in hospital with the Omicron variant, it was discovered incidentally. So they were in hospital for other reasons, and they do routine testing now of everyone who goes into hospital, and they discovered it when they were doing the routine testing. So these people didn't go in because they had Omicron. They didn't go in for that. They went in for other issues, and it was discovered incidentally. So all of this really is pointing to some quite positive news here. And it also raises, again, questions about, well, you know, what what will happen? The one question I think that we, we need more data on, of course, is... Um, what, what does it mean for unvaccinated people? Is it similar? Is it the same? Is it less deadly for them? What, what, what does all of that mean? We sort of, we, we, there's some uncertainties here that we don't know. But in the midst of uncertainty, to be rushing around and making these bold, concrete pronouncements, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. And it isn't particularly logical either. One of the statements I saw yesterday was someone saying, the best vaccine is the one available to you right now. And I thought to myself, that's not a healthcare statement. That is not a scientifically sound statement. That is a marketing slogan. Seriously, that is a marketing slogan for a political aim or for a corporate who is looking to sell you a product. That is not science. It's just insane. The best vaccine is the one available to you right now. <laughs> really? 
what if it's actually not? What if you are totally contraindicated for that? Then it's absolutely not the, you know, like this, this is not rocket science. Yeah, anyway. Um, a couple of things, though, in, in light of this that are, that are worth considering. Um, let's, uh, I want to read a particular op-ed to sort of highlight perhaps the way in which this has um, really, there really is, we are in the midst of an overreaction again. But before I do that, I want to just highlight here exactly the reality of what we're dealing with um, in the midst of, you know, so-called experts running around saying, look, you know, and also vaccine mandates and vaccination is the way forward. It's, th- this is an article that appeared on Reuters uh, just a couple of days ago, so December the 3rd. Uh, this is the European office. Dutch say 14 air passengers from South Africa with Omicron were vaccinated. So let me read to you from the article. Dutch health authorities on Thursday said most of the 62 people who tested positive for COVID-19 after arriving on two flights from South Africa last week had been vaccinated, lending weight to a call for pre-flight testing regardless of vaccination status, which is interesting because if you've been listening to me, you'll know that I've been saying it doesn't make sense. If you're going to test one group of people, the unvaccinated, you should test all people because we know that the vaccine doesn't stop you from catching and transmitting. So why wouldn't we test all people? The most important thing to know is are you infectious or not? Right, that, That's it. And so therefore, what we really need to know is, do you actually have COVID right now? And and are you infectious? And therefore, you know, the risk to other people is there. If you don't, well, then the risk doesn't exist, right? And that's got nothing to do with your vaccination status. Uh, let me carry on. In addition, all 14 passengers who were later found to have been infected with the Omicron variant were vaccinated, health officials said on Tuesday. Now, what does this all mean? Well, I mean, like... It looks pretty shady for people making the claim that these vaccines uh, are, are going to be a pathway out of anything. It raises serious questions about the whole claim of herd immunity as the answer. It raises serious questions about people running around claiming that um, that you know new mutations would be stopped and, and it's the unvaccinated people who are creating the the, the breeding ground for new mutations and, and, and they're going to be the spreaders of it, of course. You know, pandemic of the unvaccinated, all that kind of stuff. All of that's thrown into doubt. It also raises questions about why you wouldn't be doing testing, why you had mandates in the first place and how they can actually function. And, of course, it, it points to, uh, quite importantly, how uh, infectious this thing is. There's a lot to learn still about Omicron, but it absolutely it does seem we're in the middle of an overreaction to all of this. And let me read to you from an op-ed that was published. Um, This is a, uh, I think I could be wrong. I'll tell you why I'm not 100% sure on this is because I'm going to read you this op-ed, but this is someone who has scanned a newspaper page that the op-ed appeared on. And so it is not a, a website article where I can easily point to the source. I think it's a South African newspaper. I could be wrong. It could be English. Um, but this was published last week, and it's by uh, Dr. Angelique Cortez. I think it's Cortez. No, it's no Cortez, no R in there. I don't think it's so Cortez. And uh, let me read to you from the op-ed. She explains who she is and her role in all of this, and it's quite important to hear what she has to say here. As chair of the South African Medical Association and a GP of 33 years standing, I have seen a lot over my medical career but nothing has prepared me for the extraordinary global reaction that met my announcement this week that I had seen a young man in my surgery who had a case of COVID that turned out to be the Omicron variant. This version of the virus had been circulating in Southern Africa for some time, having been previously identified in Botswana. But given my public-facing role, by announcing its presence in my own patient, I unwittingly brought it to global attention. Quite simply, I have been stunned at the response, and especially from Britain. And let me be clear, nothing I have seen about this new variant warrants the extreme action the UK government has taken in response to it. No one here in South Africa is known to have been hospitalised with the Omicron variant, nor is anyone here believed to have fallen seriously ill with it. Yet Britain and other European nations have reacted with heavy travel restrictions on flights from across southern Africa, as well as imposing tighter rules at home on mask wearing, fines and extended quarantines. The simple truth is, 
we don't know yet anywhere near enough about Omicron to make such judgments or to impose such policies. Now, I would pause there and say some people might make the counter-argument that we didn't act cautiously enough last time, where we perhaps should have, and so therefore possibly caution is warranted because it could go the other way, right? It might be really, really deadly. But I think, in counter to that counter, I might say, well, the initial evidence, though, doesn't point to it being any more deadly. It's not like we've got people suddenly dropping like flies and we don't know why. The evidence is pointing in the other direction. So, you know, that would probably lend a bit of weight to her argument. Let me carry on. In South Africa, we've retained a sense of perspective. We've had no new regulations or talk of lockdowns because we're waiting to see what the variant actually means. We've also become accustomed here to new COVID variants emerging. So when our scientists confirmed the discovery of yet another, nobody made a huge thing of it. Many people didn't even notice. But after Britain heard about it, the global picture started to change. Even as our scientists tried to point out the huge gaps in the world's knowledge about this variant, European nations immediately and unilaterally banned travel from this part of the world. Now that was interesting too, that response. Again, that was the fear panic button got hit straight away. Some might suggest that possibly there's a little bit of political pressure. It's a, it's a game that's being played here because South Africa has such low vaccination rates. And this only dawned on me a day or so ago that in actual fact, it would be quite a powerful political and you know, punitive tool to, to basically shut down the borders and then the pressure goes on them to get vaccinated effectively. And then, and why would the rest of the world do that? Well, it doesn't have to be a profit motive. It can just be that they want everyone in the world to do what they're doing, which is vaccinate, because they think that's the solution. And so they're not happy that South Africa's got such low vaccination rates. And so they want to put some pressure on them to actually get vaccinated. And like they've done with lockdowns for their own populations, you punish people, you segregate them, you lock them down, and then you say, we'll give you your freedoms back if you do what we, you know, you, we want you to do. So, you know, there's, there's an interesting question there. Is this a political brinksmanship that's sort of going on here? Our government was understandably angered by this, pointing out that excellent science should be applauded, not punished. That's a really good point, because what happens next time there's a new variant and that new variant might be risky? Will a country just keep quiet about it because they're too afraid of the consequence of speaking up? If... As some evidence suggests, Omicron turns out to be a fast-spreading virus with mostly mild symptoms for the majority of the people who catch it. That would be a useful step on the road to herd immunity. We'll learn in the next two weeks if that's the case. The worst situation, of course, would be a fast-spreading virus with severe infections, but that's not where we are at at the moment. Here in South Africa, what I and my GP colleagues are seeing doesn't in any way warrant the knee-jerk reaction we've seen from the United Kingdom. For one thing, we're not, at least for now, treating patients who are severely ill. Take my first Omicron case, the young man I mentioned earlier. It didn't occur to him that he had COVID. He thought he'd had too much sun after working outside. After he tested positive, so did his wife and four-month-old baby. So far, the patients who have tested positive for Omicron here have been mainly young men, a mixture of vaccinated and unvaccinated, though in our statistics, unvaccinated can also mean single vaccinated. Only yesterday, I saw five more patients who had tested positive for the new variant. They all had a very mild illness. So at the moment, I'm afraid it seems to me that Britain is merely hyping up the alarm about this variant unnecessarily. Yes, the picture might one day look different. I have yet to see older, unvaccinated people infected with the new variant, for example, and they might well present with a more severe form of the disease. But the reality is that COVID is something we have to learn to live with. Look after yourself and get your vaccines. Above all, don't panic. And that goes for governments as well. And I think that's some great commentary from someone who's dealing with this issue right now on the ground. And and I, I think it's worth considering that and, and keeping that in mind as you read the articles about this. And don't forget to, to stop and think for yourself, well, I need to discern as well what the motivation might be here. 
There could be a political motivation. There could be a profit motivation in a particular story or a particular person's comment. So keep that in mind as you're reading about the Omicron variant over the coming days. And uh, as she has pointed out, in about a week or two, we are going to know more about exactly what we are dealing with here and what the real threat level is. And gosh, wouldn't it be great if that was the Christmas present the world got? An end to the pandemic. That would just be absolutely phenomenal. A couple of other things to to cover off just quickly before I talk about spiritual abuses and COVID. Here in New Zealand, uh, we had the news yesterday. Well, this actually happened on Friday. So let me read to you from the article. The, ty- the headline of the article from yesterday was U-turn on vaccine mandate allows takeaway staff to be unvaccinated. Let me read from the article. Staff at takeaway food and drink businesses no longer have to be vaccinated against COVID-19, despite the government earlier saying that they did. Two weeks ago, Workplace Relations and Safety Minister Michael Wood said all staff working in hospitality needed to have their first vaccination injection by the time the traffic light system came into effect on Friday. But on Friday night, official food and drink service guidelines were changed So they changed it quietly after hours, right, once the reporters have gone home for the week, to say that if a business is solely takeaway food and drink, then workers do not need to be vaccinated. Also, if they opt not to ask for vaccine passes, they can operate as a takeaway. So so they don't need, if they're just takeaways, they don't need vaccinations, and they operate as a takeaway, not a restaurant, then they don't need to have vaccine passes for entry. A national takeaway chain owner, Stuff spoke to, who wished to remain anonymous, said the government's original advice had resulted in her having to terminate the employment of two unvaccinated full-time staff members and it couldn't open one of its stores due to a staff shortage. And apparently those staff members were so traumatised by it all and losing their job that they just, at this stage, certainly they're not willing to come back because they just it really did a number on them. And I, I can understand that. It's, you know, being ostracized in that way is just completely unjust and, and it has it does have an impact. Now, what's interesting about all of this is, I mean, straight away we should be asking, well, how did this even happen? And why did it change so quickly? Like, what's gone on here? This is, to me, this just speaks to the rushed, incompetent and completely non-health focused policies that we are bearing the burden of right now. This is not prudent. This is not wise. This is not safe. And and so clearly the policy had to be changed. But then the question is, well, why did they change it back again? What was it? I mean, the cynical part of me really wonders whether some of the, the cabinet members couldn't get access to their favorite takeaways all of a sudden. And so, or maybe some friends and family had a go at them about it. And so they thought, oh, we better change this. It's kind of very weird. The whole thing is just so, so very odd. I had an experience myself this weekend in Wellington of engaging with a takeaway store where, as I said in my previous podcast, for those who listened, I am unvaccinated. And that's a a medical choice I've made. And you can listen to the previous podcast to hear the reasons why. No conspiracy, no no panic about vaccination and COVID vaccination. It's just the products available at the moment I'm not uber comfortable with. And I'm, so I'm waiting for, and my risk factors, I think, are lower than others. So I can I can actually wait, I think. But anyway, um, we had an engagement with a takeaway store, which is literally a counter with a very small surround, these big, massive bifold doors that open out onto um, the public footpath. And you literally, you take one, it would be probably a metre at most, a metre and a half maybe, you take one pace from the from the outside, like big, imagine big open bifold doors so the whole front of the store opens up and effectively you've almost got a counter that's on the street. You take one stride, one single stride, and you are right in front of the counter. So it's probably a metre, a metre and a half between this big massive opening and the counter. So the counter is right there on the street And according to the regulations, I still couldn't enter. But it actually turns out that I could have entered this place. It's not a restaurant. It's takeaway only. Very, very small pop-up thing. Um, And so what we had to do is we had to get our son. I had to stand outside and and he had to go and we had to sort of negotiate it that way to get the job done. But it was crazy. None of that needed to be happening. And it didn't really make any sense at the time. I was looking at this and I was thinking, why? What's the risk here? That This is an outdoor store, effectively. It's a takeaway store. It's not a restaurant. It's just absolutely insane. And the irony is it's, 
It's literally on the same property. It's right next door to a supermarket where people who have just been in and out of a supermarket with hundreds and hundreds of other people in a mixed setting for a much longer period of time have all been mixing and mingling. And then on the way out, some of them stop at a takeaway store where they're not allowed in there because, you know, not allowed to mix and mingle in there. The whole thing is just insane. And so this, again, this how this was even allowed to happen, it speaks to the incompetence, the, the hyper-politicization, the fact that this is not... You know, so when people say, listen to the science, mate, you know, are, are you, are you, do you love your neighbor? You'd follow the regulations. And I'm like, well, look at the mess that the regulations are in. Look at this mess. And, and, and tell me how you think that someone making a prudent, rational decision is really being any less coherent and any less loving of their neighbor than someone following rules that, that, that clearly don't make a lot of sense and then very quickly get changed again. It, it, you know, it's just so... Yeah, it, it's bizarre. It's it's an absolute mess. Again, it, it what this does is it, and, and on top of that, the other story too, of course, is the 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 little COVID outbreak that we've got going on in Nelson, in the top of the South Island here in New Zealand, and in the town of Nelson, you've had this COVID outbreak, and now as of today, three teaching staff are infected and have been involved. One of them, I believe, was actually responsible for for possibly spreading it, transmitting it to others. Not, no fault of this person. That's, that's how viruses work. It's not, you know, there should be no recrimination for that. But here's the interesting thing. I think we're pretty safe to assume that all three of those teaching staff are fully vaccinated people because you can't teach anymore in New Zealand or be a employed staff member unless you're vaccinated or one of the very rare exemption cases. And I'm assuming that they're probably not that. I mean, they could be. Maybe one of them is. Because I know that it's very hard. It's been extremely hard for people to get exemptions, even in situations that are really, really clearly legitimate. So it probably is safe to assume that we're dealing with vaccinated, three vaccinated staff members here. Again, all of this, you know, the takeaway stuff, the teaching stuff that's going on there with outbreaks and teaching staff. And you go, well, what is this policy? Where was the scientific proof for any of these policies? Why would you make a policy, then unmake it within a matter of days? So clearly it wasn't based on anything substantial. And so it, it just it points to the fact that if we were listening and we were examining things logically and rationally, we would say, as I've said previously, we're in the midst of a mass hysteria moment. We're in the midst of a dancing plague. And people are making decisions. Now, not COVID, but the decisions that are being made and the policies and the politics of it all. It's become a dancing plague people acting out of hysteria. And if we were actually, if the level of fear was dialed back, I think we would rightly probably be laughing with a bit of uh, jovial mockery about this kind of conduct. Or, and hopefully this one would be the case, we would be demanding a lot better accountability from our politicians and our leaders about exactly what is going on and why it is happening the way that it is. Now, last but not least today, before I get on to the poem from one of our patrons that I want to share with you, is the issue of COVID spiritual abuses. And what I mean by that is religious groups who are enacting COVID policies or responses to COVID, and then in order to try and sort of get compliance or to enforce these policies, they are engaging in forms of spiritual abuse on top of whatever the practical policy that they are outworking happens to be. Now, I'm not saying that this doesn't go the other way. Um, I heard of one case where someone was told, well, if, if you get the vaccine, that's taking the mark of the beast and um, you know you will be part of an anti-church and you will have sold out Christ. That That is also a form of spiritual abuse and that shouldn't be happening either. But generally what I'm seeing at the moment is is and hearing about certainly is stuff that's going the other way. And this is a couple of examples of this that I've seen and I'm seeing sort of regularly. So I'm not going to go into all the gory details um, because I don't know how much I can tell you without betraying confidences. But last week, I know of a Catholic organization here in New Zealand which mandated the vaccine for all of its staff. Now, let me be clear about this organization. They don't need to do that. Because these staff members, by and large, are not engaged in public-facing roles. So, that, and, and they're certainly not in public-facing roles with um, elderly, vulnerable people as a norm. That, that's just not who they are. And so the, the, the mandate itself is questionable. But 
what they did was, this is the Catholic organization that issues this mandate, makes reference to Pope Francis uh, and to Christian scriptures. What it doesn't do, though, is it makes, because it talks about a possible exemption, but the exemption, which they will decide whether it's legitimate or not, is only on medical grounds. But in actual fact, our own Catholic teachings and teaching documents make it very clear that for these vaccines, conscience is a legitimate exemption. And so that's not even mentioned at all in there as a possibility. There is no possibility of that, which is astounding in and of itself. But on top of that, so this is a mandate saying you've got to be vaccinated. And one of the outcomes uh, outcomes of this policy is that if you're not vaccinated, then you will be, or there's a really, the, the, the document indicates there's a strong possibility that you'll be sacked from your job. Again, and this raises all sorts of questions for me from people and organizations who have spent years and years now blathering on about social justice and marginalization, etc., who are now engaging in these sort of behaviors themselves. It really makes me wonder whether they even understood exactly what they were, they were talking about all these years, whether it was just political catchphrases. Do you know what I mean? That were sort of popular things to say. And so they were saying them as well, because I mean, clearly what you're doing here would, would I think is a clear violation of a basic Catholic social teaching and particularly how workers should be treated. This is this is absolutely unacceptable and it's happening uh, and it's being perpetrated by a Catholic organization. But here's the thing. This is where the spiritual abuse comes in because at the top of this policy document is a scripture written out in full from the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew. And it's the scripture, you know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul with all your mind. Now, that's the first and the greatest of the commandments. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is where they start with. And then they get into a document, which is a policy document about staff members and vaccination status and medical therapies and the possibility, the very high possibility that they will get sacked if they don't follow through on this particular medical therapy. I'm sorry, folks, but that is a absolutely is a spiritual abuse. You've invoked here. Uh, you've, you've put a burden on these people. And what you've done is, and I'm seeing more of this happening. I'm seeing it in documents. Unfortunately, I've seen it in our documents from our bishops, our Catholic bishops. I've seen it in church documents. I've heard people quoting it left, right, and center. You know, love for neighbor, love for neighbor, love for neighbor. As if, and really what you're doing there is you are trying to give a, um, a scriptural and a, a really a divine mandate to something that doesn't have, it's not a divine mandate in that way. And I think it's, now there's room to talk about loving neighbor and what that might mean. But loving neighbor is more complex, as I've said previously. I talked about this in the previous episode, than simply just, have you had a vaccine or not? It's also about how you treat people in public. It's about, do you look after your own health so that you're not at greater risk and you don't take up healthcare beds, etc. Uh, it's also about the fact that to love my neighbor means that I have to love and respect and care for their bodily sovereignty. So it's not just my neighbor who might want a, a vaccine policy that I've got to love. It's also my neighbor who might not want that because they have their own bodily sovereignty and I've got to respect that. It's it's much more complex than people are making it out to be. And yet this scripture in this very spiritually abusive way is being thrown around. Well, look, uh, God's on my side. You know, that kind of a thing. But it's not just these sorts of policies. Uh, I've I've heard of and heard about directly within my very, very proximate vicinity prayers that have been prayed in churches that unvaccinated people would, would do the right thing, for example. So you get these public prayers that are added into church liturgies and church services that I've heard about. I, I know of at least two incidents directly that I've been told about uh, within, uh, within driving distance of me, of where I am, where this has happened. Now, these are spiritual abuses. Now, maybe you've never heard the term spiritual abuse before, so let me just give you a quick definition, and, and it might help to sort of clarify what the problem here is. And this comes from a study by Lisa Oakley and Justin Humphrey, and, and it's a study of spiritual abuse called Escaping the Maze of Spiritual Abuse, Creating Healthy Christian Cultures. And it is highly regarded within a lot of Christian circles uh, as, um, as a study into these matters. L let me quote from these two authors. Spiritual abuse is a form of emotional and psychological abuse. It is characterized by a systematic pattern of coercive and controlling behavior in a religious context. Spiritual abuse can have a deeply damaging impact on those who experience it. This abuse may include manipulation and exploitation, enforced accountability, 
censorship of decision-making, requirements for secrecy and silence, coercion to conform, and along with that, an inability to ask questions, control through the use of sacred texts or teaching, requirement of obedience to the abuser, the suggestion that the abuser has a divine position, isolation as a means of punishment, and superiority and elitism. And I would suggest to you that that policy document I read out earlier in praying prayers in church, that the vaccinated would just hurry up and get vaccinated, that, that, that violates at least one, probably two or three of those clear markers of spiritual abuse. Because what's happening here is you are taking a situation about a personal health care decision and you are then weaponizing scripture and Christian teaching to try and give yourself the sort of divine mandate to demand this of people. So that document I talked about earlier is actually demanding people at the threat of them losing their jobs, that they follow through on this order. And clearly you start with that scripture to lay a framework. Well, I have God on my side and you therefore must listen to me. And I think particularly what makes this even more pernicious and nasty is the fact that generally speaking, the people who are most vulnerable to this are actually the people who are the, um, they are the sort of the most faithful and humble types of Christian believers. They are God's beautiful people who just, who have a desire for obedience and they don't want to go around rebelling against leaders and spiritual authorities. And so they, unfortunately, they are in a position where they are more vulnerable to this kind of manipulative and abusive leadership. And it's, you know, I think there's two forms of it that can happen. I think one form is we associate with cults and cult-like behavior. But what I think we possibly have found out through this pandemic is there is also, I think, a sort of bureaucratic spiritual abuse that bureaucracy actually gives rise to. So people who just want other people to go along with the bureaucratic policy, they don't really want to be in a position of cult-like power and leadership themselves. They don't have some utopian vision. It's, it's basically just this sort of... Um, this bureaucratic, uh, go-along-with-the-rules sort of mentality, the passive aggressiveness of bureaucracy. And it's just all part of it. Well, let's just um, thread to sack these people, put a scripture at the top of the page, and we're all good to go. Um, it's not good, and it really does need to stop happening. I, I don't know how else to say this or how plainly to put it, or how I can put this any more plainly. It shouldn't be happening. End of story. It just shouldn't be happening. Okay. Final cab off the rank. As promised, drum roll please, you've been waiting for this all episode. I have a poem to read to you from one of our patrons. And I, I he sent me this last week and I said, would you mind if I read this on air? And so in order to avoid him getting into any particular trouble, I have dubbed him the poetic patron. So the poetic patron, you know who you are. You are listening and you know who you are. Uh, if you want to send in more poems, I will happily read them under the moniker, The Poetic Patron. And so this is something he sent me last week called Pandemic of the Unvaccinated. Propaganda of the unkind. Phrase of the unwary. Proposition of the unhelpful. Polemic of the uncharitable. Phantasm of the unsophisticated, panegyric of the unproven, presumption of the uncritical, pretension of the unimaginative, panacea of the undiscerning, polarization of the undifferentiated, prejudice of the unsympathetic, partiality of the unfair, Panic of the uber-political, pejorativeness of the unjust, provocativeness of the unmerciful, persecution of the undecided, prosecution of the unconforming, prohibition of the unrelenting, poison of the unctuous, plague of the upstarts, pariahs, of the urbanites, project of utilitarianism, pogrom of the unvirtuous, pawns of the ultimatum, 
pestilence of the unusually rabid, pox of the unrighteous, pus of the unlanced abscess. Perhaps they're us. So there you go, a great piece of poetry from the poetic patron. You know who you are. And uh, I really love that poem. And that's why when I was uh, sent that poem on Friday, Friday or late last week, it was sent to me. I said, look, uh, I said uh, to the person, one of our patrons who sent it, look, do you mind if I read this? Uh, because I'd really liked it. I really, really loved it. And so I promised him I would do that in a way that was anonymous. So the poetic patron, you know who you are. If you want to send me more poetry, uh, I will happily read it on air. So there you go. I hope you've all enjoyed that. And uh, and uh, as much as, well, certainly as much as I did, I thought that was a great piece of poetry and a great piece of commentary about the times that we currently find ourselves in. I think that's all I really want to say in this episode, apart from a huge thank you to all of you again for being our patrons. Thanks to you, the content of Left Foot Media is able to be made. And so we couldn't do this without you. So a huge, huge thank you to you. Welcome aboard to all of our new patrons. I hope you've enjoyed this first patrons only episode. Don't forget, if you want to share this episode with other people, you can do that. All they have to do is become a patron with $5 or more per month and they can get access to this episode and all of the other weekly patron-only episodes that we broadcast. So that's about uh, four or five extra episodes every single month. Thanks again for tuning in. Don't forget, live by goodness, truth and beauty, not by lies. And I will see you next time on The Dispatches. Thank you.